Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. There was some great news this past week for travelers of the Blue Ridge Parkway. The Bluffs Restaurant, closed for 10 years, is set to reopen on August 22nd with a full menu. And that includes fried chicken and mashed potatoes, ham biscuits, and berry cobblers. We also passed on news that a federal judge had rejected efforts by the Trump administration to weaken the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and told you that Interior Secretary David Bernhardt has assigned a task force to prioritize how best to utilize funding from the Great American Outdoors Act to reduce the maintenance backlog in the national park system. You can find those and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. A few shows back, episode 74 to be exact, we treated you to some wildlife sounds captured in the national park system by a professional sound recording specialist. We're going to revisit that a bit today, but by taking a deeper dive, if you will. As you can imagine, the national parks offer a variety of treasures, spectacular views, scenic trails and waterways, and vast ecosystems of plants and wildlife. And what would those things be without accompanying soundscapes? Wind howling through a canyon on a scorching afternoon, or the wall of sound created by insects as soon as the sun sets, or birds singing so loudly outside your tent they wake you up before you really want to wake up. For natural sound, too, is a treasure, and like many other aspects of the national parks, affected by too much human activity. It, too, is in jeopardy. To learn more about the efforts to conserve natural sounds in the parks, the traveler's Lynn Riddick reached out to Dr. Jacob Job, research associate and listening lab director at the Sound and Light Ecology Program at Colorado State University. Working with the National Park Service, Job's team records and analyzes soundscapes unique to each park and assesses the impact of human-generated noise pollution on wildlife behaviors and visitor experience. Gathering hundreds of thousands of sound samples, the team works to make sense of human-generated assaults on our ears and what we can gain with a softened noise footprint. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Listen up, everyone. I've got Dr. Jacob Job here from the Sound and Light Ecology Program and Listening Lab at Colorado State University. 
He's joining us from Fort Collins to tell us a little bit about the current acoustic environment of our national parks, the assault on natural quiet, and why that matters. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to The Traveler. Hey, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Really, really excited to be here. The Sound and Light Ecology Program at Colorado State was formed in 2007. Tell me how the program came about and how it ties into the work of the Park Service's Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. 2007, 2008 is when we really started um, looking to collect information, so recordings of the national parks to try to understand the prevalence of noise pollution in the parks. But the program itself, at least the Sound and Light Ecology Team program that now exists, really didn't come into its current state until about 2013. Um, and then I took over in 2015 and it sort of expanded from there. The National Park Service's Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division is one of our collaborators, the other set of collaborators being scientists in fish, wildlife, conservation, biology, and biology departments. And so it's a joint collaboration. We work together and help each other sort of answer questions about the acoustical conditions or essentially what a park sounds like, and, and that's any one of the parks across the country. And so the from the Park Service side of things, they interact with the parks um, they sort of take requests to do the research in the parks, they gather the data, then the data comes over to the Colorado State side of things where I live and where the lab that I run lives and we analyze the data there, come up with a report and then we deliver it back to the Park Service to make various management decisions with. And how are you funded? We are funded almost entirely through the Department of the Interior, so it's, it's National Park Service funding. So the Park Service policy is to protect the natural soundscapes in the parks and restore those that have been degraded by unnatural sounds. And that's where your research comes into play. Tell me more about the origination of your projects. Yeah, so essentially all of our work starts, or most of our work starts with one of the parks across the country reaching out to the Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division with a request typically of one of two things. It's either they want to know um, about a specific noise pollution issue in the park, so they want to quantify it and understand its impact in the park, or two, they're just interested in sort of a baseline understanding of what does our park sound like? What are the sorts of noise pollution issues that we have? What are the natural sounds that exist in the park? Um, so it's usually one of those two, and it's, it's almost entirely um, initiated by the parks themselves. So you do a component of uh, recording, and then you also do a component of uh, research and analyzing, correct? Correct. So, you know, if you can kill two birds with one stone, that's great. So we, when we receive a request from a park, we put our microphones out into the park, typically for 30 days at a time. They, they run continuously from determined locations that are um, of particular interest, those data then come back to the lab at Colorado State University, where we will address their question, be it specific or general question, through analysis. But also on top of that, we can take the same data and answer any number of questions that were sort of outside the scope of the original question. It could be about how noise pollution impacts a specific species of bird, a specific mammal, um, how does it impact visitor enjoyment, so on and so, so forth. So we try to get as much life out of the data as we can. So you set up your equipment for 30 days typically. How do you configure it? How do you know where to put it for the best result? 
Yeah, so that's where we work pretty close with the parks themselves. And so oftentimes we will, myself or another tech, will go to a park, we'll have our recording equipment, we'll meet with some park officials, and we'll go out into a site that is um, what they deem a trouble spot with noise pollution or just a spot they're interested in. And once we're out in the field together, we'll sort of fine-tune that location based on the chances of people disturbing the equipment, wildlife disturbing the equipment, exposure to wind, um, so on and so forth. So it's kind of a back and forth between the, the park's goals and sort of our knowledge about how the microphones work best. Yeah, I was going to ask you about some of the biggest challenges of collecting good samples. Um, I heard a sample on your website of an elk munching on a microphone. So what kind of what kind of other challenges are out there that you have to overcome? Bears. I mean, <laughs> bears are always a problem especially in the Alaska parks. They're they're it's not it's not uncommon to go back out to gather the equipment to see it just sort of tossed to the side, chewed on, broken, so on and so forth. So and sometimes we have to deploy sort of low voltage electric fencing around the equipment itself to prevent that sort of issue. Uh, wind is always a problem. Wind is constantly adding excess noise to the system. So you can think of it as uh, like when your cable used to go out or I'm, I'm kind of dating myself right now when the ca cable or antenna went out and you just have this white noise on your TV, this that's essentially what wind is adding um, to our recordings. It's not really useful information most of the time. So we're always trying to battle those those type of conditions. What about your team? Who do you have on your team that's helping you gather this data? We have technicians located around the country. So the country is divided up into various regions. I mentioned the Alaska region. I'm housed here in the interior mountain region. We've got a Pacific region, a Southwest or a Southeast region, so on and so forth. And so we have technicians who live and work in those regions. They're the ones that often travel to the parks with the equipment and sort of that expertise to interact with the park officials about deploying the equipment and actually teaching the park officials how to run the equipment themselves. And so what essentially happens is after 30 days, those park officials are the ones who go out and gather everything, tear down the equipment and ship it back to us so we don't have to make that extra trip. Well, it's funny to think about, uh, you know, with all the things that the Park Service has to manage, it's funny to think that sound is one of them and they're, you know, out there running audio equipment. And there are some real audio problems out there. We know about the issue of aircraft overflights and how they have yet to be fully resolved. But what are some of the other problem noises that your research is uncovering? Yeah, I mean, the Park Service really has a sort of a tough directive. I mean, the parks are for everybody, and the Park Service encourages everybody to visit the parks, and that's great. That's wonderful to get people out there to learn a little bit more about our natural heritage and sort of the cultural heritage that existed um, in this country and before this country was actually a country. But the problem with that is you you attract enough people to a park, you also bring in noise pollution. So you can think of the summer in Yellowstone National Park, how many people, and this is not to pick on Yellowstone, this is pretty this is prevalent across 
on the parks, but you can imagine how many people are on those roads and all the traffic that uh, that comes with it and the noise. And so you get these like really tight corridors of noise pollution that, um, that are really intense along the roads and they sort of gradually fade out the further you get. So that's always an issue. Motorcycles are really a tough one to solve because in some ways they're better for the environment than cars, but it's from a noise pollution perspective, um, there's so much worse because, and this isn't all motorcycles, this is some motorcycles, but they introduce a lot of noise pollution. You mentioned aircraft, that's always a, um, a problem. And then there's just sort of the infrastructure of a park itself. You can think about HVAC systems at visitor centers. You can think about the sound of doors slamming, bathroom doors, visitor center doors, garbages, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's just the, the, the sounds that come with human activity. Yeah, and it's hard to complain because we're part of the human population making those noises and enjoying the parks. That's correct. And the thing is, though, and, and this is what we encourage everybody to, to think about when you go to a park is, yes, we it's hard to complain about the noise that we make, but the noise that we make is somewhat under our control. When you go to a park, you can you can choose to drive in specific ways that are less noisy. You can choose to not play your speakers and your iPod on the trail so everybody is listening to music along with you. You can choose to not slam doors or or yell when you're in the backcountry. So we do have some control over how much noise we make, and we try to encourage people to sort of make those behavioral changes. You mentioned the tight noise corridors. Can you give us a couple more examples of those that are maybe you know among the most jarring? Yeah, I, I think... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll turn my attention to Zion National Park. There were so many people visiting that park and so many of the, the Utah parks. They're so busy in the summer that that road that especially went down to the Narrows just became so crowded, so congested. There was so much noise pollution that they eventually had to sort of turn to this busing system to sort of alleviate all the traffic and, and a lot of that noise that was associated with it. Yellowstone is a classic one anytime you have an animal jam. So there's a bear along the road or an elk or a coyote. Everybody likes to pull over on the side of the road and see the animal. And and that's great. That's an exciting thing to see. However, um, what you can do to sort of alleviate the noise with that is turn your car off, pull all the way off to the side of the road at a safe pull-off area so you're not clogging up the road and you're not um, causing all this noise to be concentrated in in these particular areas. Cades Cove in um, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, it's our most visited national park and so many people travel to it um, every year and it's just one of the more popular places. It's really hard to get sort of that that natural quiet we think about when we think about wilderness in our national parks. Tell me about your study that you're doing that's modeling sound propagation through landscapes. Yeah. So with our work, there, there is a cost, in a, a dollar cost, with traveling to different parks, um, shipping equipment. Um, there's a time cost with all of this. And what we've learned is we've started to take the data that we've gathered across the country we, 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 we understand where noise exists because we've sampled over a million hours across the country from over 500 sites. 
what we can do is we can train computers to understand those data. So essentially, we, we take those recordings, we feed them into a computer, and the computer can then learn what are the most problematic s locations in the country in our parks based on the locations of those microphones and how much noise was collected in those microphones. We can essentially model that and project um, across a map without having to visit a lot of these locations what you would expect a place to sound like just based on data we've collected in the past. And so this has freed up a lot of time and a lot of money. It's allowed us to cover a lot more area a lot more quickly. Um, and what we found is when we go in and we sample areas that we've already modeled, the data we actually collect there matches up very closely in a lot of situations to the data that we've modeled. So it's, it's working out pretty well. You've also got some research going on right now that addresses the noise associated with energy production around the national parks. What are some of your findings, uh, especially now that there's been a decrease in energy demand during the pandemic? Yeah, that's that's going to be an interesting one. I mean, the problem with the pandemic is it's sort of prohibited a lot of the parks from deploying equipment this spring and this summer just because social distancing, the logistics of quarantining and so on and so forth. So what that's going to look like with regards to energy development and other noise pollution issues, we're not sure yet. And that, that's something that we're still collecting data on and trying to understand. In general, we have found that oil and gas development does have a noise footprint in the national parks. I'm specifically thinking about a trip I took to North Dakota up to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, Fort Union Trading Post, so, so on and so forth. The sound of oil wells, the sound of trucks, um, oil and gas trucks moving up and down highways, it's very prevalent and it does bleed over um, into the national parks. And I think the important thing to remember is just because the national parks have a boundary where the park begins and ends, sound doesn't care about that boundary. It just travels over it like it doesn't exist. Um, and so the parks do their best with what they can, both inside the park and trying to work with entities outside the park, but it, it's an issue for sure. I wanted to ask you about the annual Sturgis Motorcycle Rally Ride to Devil's Tower during the month of August. your research revealing about the impact on birds, bats, and other wildlife from that, you know, pretty unique onslaught of noise? Yeah, so I believe that study was done in 2016, and I want to say it, it might have been the 75th anniversary. It was a big anniversary of, of, of the rally, and there was going to be an unusually large number of motorcycles on the road, and so it was sort of an opportunity to set up this natural experiment before, during, and after understanding the soundscape at Devil's Tower, one of the points um, where the motorcycles drive through. And just to be clear, Devil's Tower is in Wyoming. So we were specifically interested in looking at the composition of the bird community and the bat community before, during, and after the rally, trying to understand how does noise impact their vocalizations and their communication with each other. 
and I can't speak to the specifics off the top of my head, but we did see that there was an impact. We did see reduced rates of vocalizing, and I'm speaking specifically to the birds, and I seem to remember that it took a prolonged period of time for the birds to get back to vocalizing under normal conditions once the rally was over. It was stressful to the birds, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, that's what you know, the sort of research or the body of research at large, not just with our group, but across the country and across the world, we've come to understand is noise impacts wildlife uh, at many different levels from stress to disrupts communication. It alters space use. So it will exclude certain species from certain spaces, even though they would prefer to be there. So yeah, there are lots of different effects that noise have on wildlife. It seems to me that we are getting more and more tolerant of noise, and maybe that's just because noise keeps getting forced upon us. And I was thinking about that the other day when I was pumping gas at a busy intersection, and there was loud music being piped in right there at the gas pump, which is already a loud place. And I wondered who thought this music might enhance my gas pumping experience. And You have a study going on that maybe addresses that a little bit. You're attempting to understand soundscapes across the entire continental U.S. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, noise is certainly part of our culture in the United States and a part of a lot of cultures across the world. It's something that has certainly grown as a problem. It's uh, it impacts us in a lot of ways that we are still understanding, but it impacts us in ways that we clearly understand. So it's it's pretty surprising to me that we not only allow noise to exist, but we often add noise just because we're so used to it. So the, the specific situation you mentioned, noise at a gas station. You're right, gas stations are already noise because by their nature, they're next to roads. Oftentimes they're next to highways. Car doors are slamming, engines are running. And then you have TVs or speakers and I don't know. I think we've almost forgotten how to be comfortable with silence in a lot of ways. It's just part of our culture. So, yeah, the work that we do as a team is understanding the spread of noise in natural spaces and non-natural spaces across the country. I mean, we've been doing this work for well over a decade now. Um, We've gathered a lot of data. We can um, show that Noise pollution is not just a problem in our cities. It has spread into our protected areas across the country, but especially east of the Mississippi River, which is where the majority of the population of the United States is. Um, And it's something that is not getting better, but seems to be getting worse. And I think it's going to take some sort of cultural reckoning to sort of curb its worst effects to begin with. And then from there, hopefully we can, we can chip away at it as much as possible. How does your study put its arms around this huge issue? I think it's just a little at a time. I mean, you start with our first issue, the Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division of the National Park Service. They were really initially tasked with understanding overflight noise. So the, the sound of aircraft flying overhead, be it um, commercial jets like you would take on vacation, be it military jets or helicopters. So, you know, from that point, you start to look at the, the prevalence of those overflights in different places around the country. You look at how much noise 
um, radiates from those overflight events. And then you start to look at vehicles, and then you start to look at, you know, construction equipment and HVAC and so on and so forth. And you start to spread that over the country. And, you know, 10, 12, 13 years later, you have a really good understanding of the most common sources of noise pollution, where they're emanating from, how far they spread, and sort of the impacts on the wildlife and visitor enjoyment that comes with it. I read a 2016 report that you wrote about Saguaro National Park. Your report concluded, and I'm going to quote from the report, it is unlikely that a visitor to Saguaro can experience a significant time period completely free from anthropogenic noise, with this possibility being highly unlikely in two specific sections of the park. Furthermore, the presence of persistent noise and increased sound levels may have wide-ranging effects on wildlife, such as reduced predatory success and increased vigilance by keystone species. Can you tell us a little more about this, and is it really that dire there? Well, I mean, dire is sort of in the eye of the beholder. Um, So going back to the, the findings of the study, and remember, these studies... Um, are written up about data collected at specific locations. And so if you know anything about Saguaro National Park, it's divided into two units there um, on the east and west side of Tucson. Um, we were specifically um, in that particular study looking at the eastern unit and at the southern edge of that eastern unit. And so, you know, you've got interstate, I believe it's 10, that is running parallel to that southern border You've got a military airport nearby. You've got lots of industrial infrastructure nearby. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, dire in the sense that if you go to Saguaro National Park in the east unit, and and if you're hiking one of those trails over there, you are probably not going to find any prolonged period of natural quiet. You always, to put it in a different way, you're always going to hear noise pollution. And so if you're someone who's seeking out that quiet, you're going to have a hard time finding it. The wildlife that live there year-round, you know, they rely on that quiet for some of the reasons that we mentioned. You know, some of these predator-prey interactions, you know, they're finely tuned over long evolutionary periods. And if you start to introduce a disruptor like noise pollution, you start to break down the ability of a predator to hear its prey moving through the underbrush, but also the prey to hear the predator moving in on it. And so there are lots of different ways that wildlife are impacted. That's that's one of them. And if you're if you're a, a, a predator in the park trying to find a meal and there's noise pollution constantly interrupting, it could be dire for that individual at that time in that location. So yeah, I think um, it's a big problem. Is it an emergency situation? No, I, I think noise pollution is a major issue. The park is still going to be there. A lot of the ecosystem functions, a lot of the wildlife are, are still there right now. But we have chipped away at the experience. We have chipped away at the health of an ecosystem. And we have chipped away at populations of some species that live there. And it may get to a point where we fully exclude some species and we fully break down some ecosystem functions. So over the years, there's been significant legislation to address noise in the national parks, some successful, some disregarded. What research are you currently working on that you believe will have the biggest impact policy-wise? 
Well, I think we continue to do work around aircraft overflights. I think that's still important to sort of continue to qualify or quantify the prevalence of noise pollution from aircraft and really understand the problematic areas within certain parks and certain regions of the country. I mean, the more you understand, the more you can take that information to the Federal Aviation Administration, for instance, and, and try to work with them to come up with a plan that allows them to function like they need to, but also limits the impact on the national parks and our wilderness areas below. And um, there's been a, a little bit of success with that. I think the next step really is going to come from the people. So we, we have record visitation at national parks up until this year, this year excluded because of COVID. So we have an audience there who have the ability, the vast majority of them have the ability to evaluate what um, a national park sounds like. Do they like those sounds? What do they wish they heard more of? What do they wish they heard less of? And so really it's sort of a grassroots movement of taking our data, putting it in a way that is digestible and informative to the public and getting them to really start to contact their local representatives to say, hey, is there something we can do about this particular issue or in general noise pollution? Because it's really detracting from my enjoyment while I'm in the national parks. And the national parks are such a positive, well-liked program, uh, government program, that the government at least is open to listening to sort of suggestions and complaints from the public. What areas of research would you like to do next? I, I think we're really interested in understanding the impact of COVID on the soundscapes of our national parks. Hopefully we were able to deploy enough microphones across the country to gather the sounds um, during the, the peak of quarantine. And as we slowly have come out and go back into quarantine um, with the ebbs and flows of the virus. So I think there's a lot to be learned there about not just how the parks changed and how they sound, but also how that change impacted wildlife and um, impacted visitor enjoyment. So that's going to be really interesting. I think that's a pretty high priority. For me personally, I I would like to take my personal part of my work with the team towards advocacy. So I would love to get into some of these threatened places around the country, um, such as the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, which is outside the National Park Service, it's Fish and Wildlife Service. But I would like to sort of work in these areas that are threatened with development, you know, oil and gas development, or um, areas that are threatened by new road infrastructure, so on and so forth, and, and capture the sounds of these places as they exist now. Because you can't really, you don't really know what you have to lose until you understand what you have in the first place. And so I would love to gather these really interesting recordings of these places for people to enjoy and to learn from. And so they really truly understand what we risk losing. And so they can become sort of advocates for protecting these places for as long as possible. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jacob Job from the Sound and Light Ecology Program at Colorado State University. And after this short break, we'll hear some sounds of nature at their purest. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. 
The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jacob Job from the Sound and Light Ecology Program at Colorado State University. Jacob, tell me a little bit about the listening lab there. The listening lab, it is, to put it bluntly, sort of a 15 by 20 foot room in the basement of a research building on Colorado State University's campus. But it's so much more than that. It's usually... Um, filled up with undergraduate research students. So these are students who are working on their degrees that are also looking for extra experience in doing research, or they're just looking to make some extra money, or they're really interested in the national parks or conservation. Um, they come to us and um, they help us analyze a lot of our data. I sit down there with them. I, I've run the lab since 2015. Um, I came um, right after my dissertation work at Western Michigan University. And since I've been there, I have grown the lab over 200%. Um, we've analyzed well over a half a million hours of data since I've been there. I've worked with or hired and worked with 40, 42 students, I think it is, um, at this point. And outside of that work, we also give those students an opportunity to use our data to ask their own questions and, and evaluate their own ideas. And so they can come up with their own research projects that are acoustical based. And I sort of guide them through that process. And so they get even more research experience um, in order to be more marketable when they try to leave college and go find a job in the conservation world. Now your listening lab has some really interesting samples that caught my ear. And I wanted to ask you about some of them, whether they tied into a particular research project and whether you were surprised by the sheer intensity of some of these sounds. First, I'll start with the evening frog chorus in the Lewis and Clark National Historical Park. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this, this project was... Um, sort of in conjunction with a um, research project with a the park. They're really trying to understand 
the patterns of bird migration through the park over time, trying to see if maybe um, birds are migrating earlier because of climate change or maybe some species are being excluded or new species are showing up, so on and so forth. And they asked me to come out to the park and record some of the sounds of the park, both in the context of that research, but also to recreate the sounds of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And so what I did was I went to some of the spots that they were known to have visited um, during their expedition, at the end of the expedition, and I recorded the sounds of musket fire and candle making. The sounds of the, 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 the freshwater spring bubbling right behind the Fort Clatsop, uh, what that sounded like, but also the sounds of the wind through the trees on the coast, the sound of the coast, the waves battering the shore, and like you mentioned, choruses of birds and frogs in what essentially is sort of a temperate rainforest up there. So you've got all this great biodiversity and awesome sounds of birds and frogs. And so that particular recording was actually across the Columbia River at Cape Disappointment in Washington State. And you just get this incredible sound of these frogs, I believe they're Pacific chorus frogs, calling to each other with these towering hemlock trees above. So it sort of created this natural echo chamber or cathedral. And so you get this really cool effect um, listening to them. And there's no doubt that these are some of the sounds that Lewis and Clark they and, and the rest of their, their crew would have heard at the time when they uh, made their way out there. That really puts it into perspective, you know, to imagine what they might have heard on their trip. Yeah, and I, th I think that's something that helps people connect to that history rather than history just being a set of facts that um, don't have a lot of context. It, when you put it in the context of these sounds and these places, you start to, to bring that journey alive to people. You start to get them more interested in those particular locations, and, and they start to think about the people and the wildlife that they would have interacted on their journey. So the journey becomes more three-dimensional in, in a lot of ways rather than just two-dimensional facts on a piece of paper. And, and, and that's what it's really about, engaging people in new and immersive ways to get them excited to learn about our parks. Tell me about the Don Chorus and Volcanoes National Park. <laughs> um, I smile big when I think of this one because I had been... In fact, I hadn't even started my first day working um, for the Sound and Light Ecology team when they reached out to me before I had even moved out to Colorado. And they said, hey, um, do you think you'd be interested in going to work in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park um, the first month you're there? And of course, <laughs> I couldn't believe my luck. You know, I'm, I'm this poor college student for what seemed like forever. And next thing you know, you know, I've got a job and I'm being asked to go to Hawaii to do some outreach um, with school kids. And so when I was out there, or before I went out there, you know, I expressed some interest in doing some audio recording of the dawn chorus. So the sound of the forest as it wakes up each morning, the sound of the birds and the insects and so on and so forth. And so I gathered up some equipment. I went out there and, you know, 3.30 a.m., I trudged out there in the dark, hiked back into the middle of this protected area. So, like, the location is called Kapuka Key, and a, and a kapuka is essentially, 
an ancient stand of forest that has been surrounded by lava flows, but it's self it itself had not been um, run over by lava so you get this ancient forest really like an island of biodiversity and so I went into the middle of this and yeah I hit record and it was my first ever professional recording and um, so it's really special to me. Tell me about the recording of the western screech owls clacking in Sequoia National Park. Yeah, that's it's a really interesting one, and um, it's again, I I think you've picked all three recordings where I was working in the dark or almost in the dark, and this is another one where I I spend a lot of time at night by myself in these in these parks, and I the night before I was trying to record crickets, I think it was, and I heard this just crazy sound this like clacking of like what are they called castanets or something from the trees and you know I have a background in in birds and so I knew it was likely owls and so the next night I went back out to the same location I set up my microphones and I just sat there for two hours waiting for this to happen again and sure enough you know it starts and when you've got the headphones on Everything is so much louder. So, you know, a mouse moving through the grass sounds like a mountain lion stalking you. And this, these owls started clacking and it was just like they're right on top of me. And what it is, is they're just being territorial um, with each other or they're warning each other of danger. And who knows, I could have been that danger that they're warning each other about. I have to ask you about the mosquito swarm. You recorded this at Pocket Lake in Minnesota. Who was the brave one on that assignment? As always, it's always me. And this is, to this day, been my probably favorite trip of my life. I spent eight days by myself in the wilderness, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness of northern Minnesota. And I did a 50-mile paddle loop through the wilderness. And there's a thing that happens in the wilderness of Minnesota in the summer, and it's called Bug 30. And usually each night at dusk, and depending on how close you are to the solstice, so June 21st, Bug 30 usually starts about 9.30, 9.45, and you just start to hear this low-grade hum from the bushes all around you. And you know at that point you've got about 20, maybe 30 minutes to get everything gathered up and into your tent, zipped up, because all of a sudden the mosquitoes just start swarming in numbers that are really hard to comprehend. So that recording was essentially my microphone cables running out of my tent, the microphone sitting out in front of it, everything's zipped up. So I'm laying down in that tent listening to this just 
frightening sound around me. And I just felt like it was something that was part of the experience that people should know about. And I always tell people, I don't think I have a, a talent necessarily, but if I did, it's, I get really comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's one of those times I just embrace it and make the best out of the situation. Now, I was trying to think about sounds that I really like, and I sure like the sounds of katydids and cicadas during the summer. What are some of your favorite sounds? I mean, hands down, my favorite sound is a northern lake, a boreal forest, so northern Minnesota, Michigan, up into Canada, at night in your tent, and the sound of loons calling across the lake. And it's... A lot of people think it, you know, when they first hear it, they often think they're wolves. And I, I totally get it. It's certainly one of the classic sounds of wilderness, that and wolves. So that, that right there, nothing puts a bigger smile on my face than, than hearing that in the summer from my tent. Um, and, and a dawn chorus is so different depending on where you are across the country. And I've listened to so many different choruses and so many different ecosystems. And um, one of the ones that I, I absolutely loved the most was, and this was pretty unexpected, with the foothills of Sequoia National Park and the Blue Oak Forest, which is a pretty endangered ecosystem in Southern California. And the sounds there, they were just... They were so unique. I hadn't really experienced them before. And they just, they were so clean and clear and vibrant. Um, and they were just, I don't know, I didn't expect this, what's usually a really dry ecosystem when it was like in its green season. So March, early April, just to be so lively. And that was really fun. What is it about sounds that take us back to another memory, another point in time? And I... I have to say, when I was listening to some of your clips on the website and I listened to some of the Wolves recordings, I immediately went back to when I was a little girl and my parents piled us up in the station wagon. We went to the drive-in theater to see Dr. Zhivago. And I'm very young. The movie made no sense to me. And the only thing I remember from that movie is the scene with the wolves. So what is it about sound? Do we appreciate how much it plays into our memory? Yeah, I think you're, you're hitting on sort of the unofficial thesis of my personal recording work is I try to tap into those memories, um, which are often tied to emotions, both negative and positive, but it, it really triggers thought and, 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 and memories. And so... How it exactly works, I don't understand. I'm not a neurobiologist. I, I know how to hack into sort of people's neural networks by presenting them those sounds, and that's what I'm trying to do. Um, you can think about, you know, I think about the first song I heard, or the song I was listening to when I had my first kiss, for instance, and every time I hear it, it takes me back to that moment. You know, loons take me back to fishing on lakes in northern Michigan with my dad when I was a teenager. And so, yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's so prevalent for, for everybody. And I think the sense of smell is the only other sense we have that really does that. 
um, in that way. And so that's what I try to do. I try to present recordings to people that will trigger emotions and memories to get people to care about those places. And once you have you know, an audience that cares, then you have an audience that is willing to stand up and speak, speak out for its protection. Any other thoughts that you'd like to add about the work you're doing? I would just like to remind people that noise pollution doesn't have to be part of our lives. It's, it's, a, it's a conscious decision, at least some of it is, that we make every day. So once you start listening to it, you can't really unhear it. So I, I hear every aircraft that flies over. I don't know all that I want everybody to experience that because I don't always like that. But just try to try to be conscious of your noise footprint, essentially, and, and do what you can to limit the spread of noise pollution when you're in wilderness or at a national parks or even at your own home in your backyard. Just be cognizant of your impacts, not only on yourself, but wildlife and people around you. Jacob, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and hearing some of your work. I wish you all the best in your efforts to preserve the natural sounds of the national parks. Well, thank you, Lynn, for having me. It was, it was really a pleasure being here with you today. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to mix current events with history by taking a look not only at the current coronavirus pandemic and its impacts on the national park system, but by turning the calendar back to the early 20th century to see what impact the 1918 flu pandemic had on the parks. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. Find out more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.